are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and the thirteenth verse. The thirteenth verse in the fourth chapter in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want really to deal only with the first words in this 13th verse. Till or until we all come. Now I call your attention to these words not only because it comes next in our consideration of this great epistle to the Ephesians, but because we happen to be meeting together this morning on what has come to be known as Armistice or Remembrance Sunday. And I am anxious that uh, those two things should be borne in mind as I proceed to an exposition of these particular words. Let us remind ourselves that the Scriptures while they speak to us eternal truth, are always relevant. Any impression that is ever given that the scriptures are not relevant is false to the scriptures. They are timeless and they are ageless, and for that reason they are always contemporary. The scriptures deal with the local history, immediate history at particular times, but they deal with all history. And it is very important and essential that we as God's people should always bear that in mind. Now, there is perhaps no danger that uh, confronts us and tends to afflict us so much as members of the Christian church in days and times such as these as our failure to understand the many-sidedness of the gospel. This is perhaps uh, something that uh, different sections of the church are uh, guilty of in differing ways. Perhaps the chief danger confronting those of us who are evangelical is to conceive exclusively of the gospel in personal terms and to forget its larger ambit, its wider scope while thanking God that primarily and the thing that affects us most urgently is the fact that God is the God of salvation in a personal sense. We must never lose sight of the fact that God is still God the Creator, the God who has made the whole world, the God to whom the whole world still belongs, the God under whose hand the whole world and all its affairs and everything that happens in it still are. That, I say, is perhaps our particular danger, but there are others, of course, who go to the other extreme and they so concentrate on what they regard as the general message of the gospel, as to ignore and forget entirely the individual message. And thereby, of course, they waste their time, because the general, in God's plan and God's scheme, is always brought past in and through the particular but I say that our danger perhaps is to fail to view ourselves and all our experiences in the light of this larger, bigger teaching 
that is presented to us in the scriptures. What I mean is something like this. That so often we tend to live in compartments. That we may be perfectly clear in our minds as to our own personal position and relationship to God in Christ. But we do not seem to be clear as to what is happening in general. As to what is happening in the world and in history, contemporary history. We may not be perfectly clear as to what is happening in the whole realm of the church as we ought. Now there is a great deal, I think, of confusion about this very thing at the present time. And perhaps the confusion is greatest of all with respect to the church herself. What she is, what her function is, what she is meant to be doing in the world at this present hour. Now it is to that in particular that I'm anxious to direct attention this morning. Because it does seem to me more and more that the real tragedy today is the failure of the Christian church to speak, to speak from God, to speak the biblical message, and to speak it with authority. And that, I suggest, is due to the fact that she so persistently fails to take her commands and her orders from the Bible itself, but rather takes it from her own thinking and philosophizing and indeed perhaps from the world itself. Now let me put all this into the setting of this particular day. The danger on a day like this is that the church should allow her message to be determined by the world instead of insisting that it is still determined by the scriptures. It's very natural. The church finds herself but a small minority in society. And she is concerned about the masses that are outside. And the temptation that comes to her is, of course, is to say to herself, well now, if I talk to the people about things that they understand and they like, they will begin to listen and they will come to church. Now, as you are well aware, the church is doing that constantly. will jump at any opportunity to speak to the world, as it were, in its terms and on its own level. What more useful, therefore, than a day such as this? And so the church becomes a kind of court chaplain or a state chaplain and speaks a vague general message, a message which is rarely dictated by the world that is outside the church. Now that, as I think we've been seeing very clearly the last Sunday mornings, is something which is entirely wrong and false. The whole object of this particular fourth chapter at this point in particular is to show that everything that the church does is to be ordained and determined and decided by the Lord himself. This Lord who has descended and then ascended and who has led captivity captive and who is now in the heavens and filling all things, it is he that determines everything for the church. He determines, as we've seen, all the offices in the church, the men who fill the offices. It is he who determines what the function of these offices is. It is he who decides what the message is and everything in connection with it. That is why we have this revelation. And therefore, what can be more tragic than that the church should speak, as it were, in and of herself and try to please men 
and to have a message which is determined by some human situation. It seems to me to be an utter denial, not only of the authority of the scriptures, but of the whole message of the Bible, from beginning to end. It's tragic, of course, for a further reason, that it's a sheer waste of breath, a waste of energy, and a waste of time. Think of all that will probably be said today uh, from Christian pulpits about political matters and international affairs and so on. Is it likely that any government anywhere is going to pay the slightest attention to it? Does it have the slightest influence upon affairs? And in any case, who are ministers of Christ in this respect? What authority have they to speak about such matters? They can only express their own opinions. And they contradict one another. Some are on one side, some are on another. Some will be preaching nothing but pacifism today. Others will almost be preaching a militarism and calling upon the nations to arm against the menace of communism. And so the message of the church is utterly divided because of these opinions of men which are not based upon the scriptures. Now, it is important, therefore, as I think you'll see, that we should have a clear understanding of the message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures, what the church is here and what the church is supposed to do. And it seems to me that in these words that we're looking at, we have it very plainly and very clearly so that there is no excuse for us if we miss it. What is happening in the world at the present time? What is all this? What has all this to do with us? What is the relevance, if you like, of Christianity to the present time? What is the message of God's word to this world as it is this morning? Now that's the question. How do we as individual Christians see ourselves in this present context? Are we confused? Are we bewildered? I say we have no right to be. Because the whole position is put very plainly and very clearly before us in these words. Till until we all come. Now then, what's it mean? Well, let me try and divide it up and put it in the form of a number of propositions. The first thing that is clearly taught here is this, is that God has a plan for this world. You see, the message is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was ascended back into the heavens and is there at the right hand of God, has now determined certain things with respect to the church. The church is to do certain things, and it's to go on doing it, we are told here, till. Until. In other words, we are told at once that there is a time factor in all this. That in spite of all that is happening in the world, that God has got his great plan. And that this plan has been determined in all its details. that uh, in the midst of all that seems to be so contingent and almost accidental, something else is happening. God's great plan and purpose has been set in motion, it's been set into operation, and it's, it's going on. Now, the God who seems to be uh, altogether apart from the world and who so many... Uh, uh, 
think of at the present time as doing nothing at all, and even Christian people may think that because they've got hold of this idea that God can only do things in one particular way, namely intervene dramatically and put an end to dictators or to give a victory to a country or something like that, they fail to see that the whole time God is acting and God is bringing his great and mighty and glorious purposes to pass. Now, you can't read the Bible, surely, even in a very superficial and cursory manner, without seeing clearly that there is this great plan of God. I don't want to stay with this this morning, but take your Old Testament, and you will see that all along God is there over all and above all, does things at precise moments, has determined when things are to happen, and he brings it all to pass, intervenes even into our history at times, and then, of course, supremely when the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. There it is. And out of that, the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ comes this Christian church to which you and I belong. And now the great teaching is that through the church, God is bringing this mighty purpose of his to pass. Now then, there I say is the first principle which we must lay hold of and never forget it. You look at all this again in the scriptures and you will see so frequently how God seems to have abandoned the process. How often did he seem to have forgotten the children of Israel and their enemies rose up and triumphed and they boasted and shouted. And the children of Israel themselves began to ask, where is God? Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten to be good? You'll find them expressing it in the Psalms and elsewhere. God seems to be abandoning and forgetting his people. But he never does. The whole message of the Bible is to say that he doesn't. He waits. We don't understand it. But he told Abram, you remember that certain things would be permitted until the iniquity of the Amorites is fulfilled, is full. Then he's going to do something. In other words, we must learn to understand something of God's timing, God's chronology, if I may so express it, though he is timeless. But the principle is, above everything else, to realize that there is this great plan and purpose which is there and still is being pursued and carried out. The second principle is that this plan centers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are seeing this constantly in this epistle to the Ephesians. The apostle stated it once and forever in the 10th verse, of the first chapter. Here it is, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, this is, of course, uh, an aspect of the matter again that is so important on a day like this. Any message that is delivered today which is not delivered specifically in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Christian message. Isn't it tragic to think that so much paganism is abroad? 
And that the church even is content to talk about God in vague generalities and try to give comfort to people who are not Christians. There is no comfort to people who are not Christians. Everything is in Christ. And God's dealings with men and with the world are entirely and only in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's the very center of this plan. Everything until he came looks forward to him. It is a great promise. It's a preparation for him. He comes. That's the pivotal moment. And therefore I say for the Christian church to talk in vague generalities about God and goodness and morality is a very denial of this precious gospel. The plan centers in the Son of God who left eternity and came into time in the flesh in order that this great plan and purpose might really be put into operation. Oh, I say, let us be sure that we are perfectly clear about all this. The church is not an adjunct of the state. The state has no right to tell the church what she is to do. That's the tragedy of the ages, as we see so clearly, the prostitution of the Christian church. The church becoming just a department of state and subservient to the state. And the church speaking the language of statesmen. It's an utter denial of all this. Isn't that the very thing that the, that the book of Revelation means when it talks about this great whore? Isn't that it, seen perhaps most clearly of all in Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, but alas, seen many, many times since then, even in Protestantism? The Church has something which uh, is simply the spiritual side of the state. It's an utter denial, I say, of the very central message of the New Testament itself. No, no. This message is a specific message. And it's all in terms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. I don't hesitate to assert that all God's dealings with mankind this morning in every shape and form are in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he alone who saves. It is he who is going to judge. He said himself that the Father has committed the judgment unto him. Everything is in and through him. And therefore any message which is not centrally in terms of him, is not Christianity, whatever else it may be. Here, I say, is the supreme tragedy that a veiled paganism so often masquerades as Christianity. And it's not surprising that the Christian church is as she is. It's not surprising that the masses of the people are outside when they think that the church is but a department of state and it's, that it's being used and manipulated, they won't listen. No, no. This is something unique and separate. This is God's kingdom. This is Christ's kingdom. It doesn't belong to those kingdoms. It has no real relationship with it. It stands over and against it. Very well. Having said that, let me come to this. Now then, I say that God has a plan, and it's a plan that centers in and is worked out through the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom does this apply? To whom does this plan of God apply? The answer here is we all. This is going on, he says, until 
we all come. Who are we? Well, surely there need be no discussion about this. The we all means Christian people only. It means only those who are members of the body of Christ. The apostle is speaking about the church. He's not interested here in anything but the church, and the we all refers to the members of the church. We all does not refer to the whole world. Now that, it seems to me, is the essential error. And there is no error that is more grievous than this. And that is why I want to emphasize it particularly this morning. The Bible divides the world into two groups and two classes. And if ever there was a need of asserting this, it is at this present time. The Bible says that there is a sharp division on the one side of the lost, on the other side of the saved. Now, you see, that's inevitable because it's all centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. What determines everything is a man's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in the right relationship to him, you're among the saved. If you're in the wrong relationship, you're amongst the lost. Now, that's a division that runs right through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. God made a nation for himself, the children of Israel. He separated them. Here was Israel. There was the rest of the world, the nations. And it goes on in the New Testament. The church is the new nation. Here is God's nation, the church. So that the division is those who are in the church and who belong to the body of Christ and those who don't. Now then, this is the thing that comes out of that. That there is no message in the New Testament for the lost except to tell them that they are lost. That they're under condemnation. That they're under the wrath of God. And that unless they repent, they remain lost and will be lost to all eternity. This is what I want to emphasize. That the New Testament has nothing to say to the world this morning except that. Nothing whatsoever. Our only message to those who are in the world is to repent and to believe the gospel. Nothing else. There is no further interest taken. If a man does not repent and believe the gospel, well, he remains where he is, and the gospel has nothing further to say to him. There is no hope for the world outside Christ. None whatsoever. There is no improvement predicted or prophesied for the world. None whatsoever. There is no greater error or heresy than to think that it is the business of Christian preaching to improve the world somewhat. It's a denial of the gospel. I am using my language advisedly and soberly. The idea that it is the business of the church to recommend Christian principles to the world and plead with it and ask it to put it into practice, to send messages to statesmen and ask them to put it into practice, I say is a denial of this. The only message of the gospel to the world is to tell it to repent because it's under the wrath of God and that unless it repents, it's lost and lost eternally. There is no message, I say, but repent and believe.
the world outside Christ is entirely without hope. And all that is happening to it is that according to God's wisdom it is being kept within bounds. A certain limitation is placed upon its evil and the manifestation of its evil. So that all the variations that may take place in human history are absolutely irrelevant. There are variations. Sometimes the world seems to be a bit better than it was at other times. There is no doubt at all that the world was a better place a hundred years ago than it is today. But it's an absolute irrelevancy. Though people then behaved in a better manner than they do now. If they were not saved, they were amongst the lost and the damned. And the fact that they were a little bit more moral will avail them nothing at the day of judgment. Nothing at all. There is no other category. The Bible is not interested in bad, a little bit better, better still, very good, excellent. It hasn't got such categories. It says you're either in Christ or else you're not in Christ. You're either saved or else you're lost. And I think this must be emphasized that it has no message whatsoever for the man who is in Christ but just that. Well, you say, what is happening? Well, what is happening is this. God in and through Christ is calling out a people for himself. This message of repentance and of belief in Christ is sent out to all men, and those who believe it are the called of God in Christ, and he calls them unto himself, and he sets them apart in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God and of Christ. The church is its present form. And the teaching is that God's plan and purpose is only with respect to them. There is nothing more to be said about the others. They will continue in sin. They will die in sin. They will go to perdition. And we shall see in a moment the end of all that. There is no plan there. It's simply that they're outside the plan. The plan is only with respect to those who belong to Christ, who are in Christ. In other words, every New Testament epistle is addressed only to Christian people. Every New Testament epistle is addressed to a church or to a number of churches. It's never meant for the world. It was never meant that this ethic which we find here should be commended to the man who is outside Christ. He cannot live it. And even if he tried to and succeeded partially, it would avail him nothing. If he's not in Christ, he's outside his loss. The plan, I say, has reference only to those who are members of the body of Christ, till we all come, and nobody else, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Very well, then, what is the plan? Well, here is something very wonderful for us to look at this morning. We see the world as it is in its travel and in its trouble. Some of us have known two world wars, you ask, what's happening? What does all this mean? Where am I in the midst of all this? Ah, oh, the answer is this, that you are a part of God's great plan. And what is his plan? Well, his plan is the perfecting of his own people. Christ has given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What for? Well, for the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until 
we all come. Here it is in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what is happening. Oh, but says someone, this is Phariseeism. You're setting yourselves apart and you say God's interested in you and not in anybody else. It isn't Phariseeism for this reason. The Pharisees thought he was a man apart because he was such a good man and a fine fellow. We say we've been set apart because we are desperate sinners who've realized it and who have so realized it that we are not like the men of the world trusting to ourselves but are trusting only to Christ. And that he's taken hold of us and that he's done something to us and that he's going to do something to us until we shall all be made perfect and become this perfect men and attain unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My dear friend, do you think of yourself like that? Have you seen yourself like that as a member of the Christian church and as a citizen of God's kingdom? You say, what's happening in all this that's taking place in the world? Well, don't look at the world. Look rather at this, and then look at yourself in this. God's plan for the church? It's been going for centuries, and it's still going. And you know what it is? It's this. He's preparing a bride for his dearly beloved only begotten son. The church is compared to a building, she's compared to an empire, she's compared to a family. But there is this other comparison worked out by the apostle in chapter 5 of this very epistle. The church as the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. We had it again in that 19th chapter of the book of Revelation that I read to you at the beginning. Oh, that we caught sight of this this morning and had a glimpse of it. Stop thinking for a moment about statesmen and international conferences and hydrogen bombs and possible wars and this and that. All that, you know, in a sense to us is irrelevant. I know we're going to suffer as everybody else will have to suffer if such things come to pass. But I don't stop at that. I look up. My citizenship is in heaven. Or if you like the other translation, we are a colony of heaven. Well, let's think of the homeland, therefore, on this armistice day when we think of death and the end of all things. Here is our position. The bride of the Lamb. And what's happening? Well, we are being prepared for him. That's the ministry of the church. My business this morning is not to deliver to you my opinions as to what I think the Prime Minister or anybody else should do about uh, the atomic bomb or about uh, armaments or about industry, or a thousand and one things. I've got something infinitely bigger and more important to tell you. And it's this to tell you, that if you're a member of the Christian church, you're going to be the bride of the Lamb. And my business is to prepare you for that, for this glorious day that is coming. I have no opinion to give to statesmen, but I can speak with authority here. It is the plan and the purpose of God in Christ to prepare this kingdom for him, this bride for him, and he's going to come and he's going to receive her. For you see, we don't only preach a Christ who came nearly 2,000 years ago and who suffered under Pontius Pilate and who died and was buried and rose again. We preach a Christ who is coming back, coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Have you seen the rider on the white horse? 
with the sword in his mouth, which is his word, he's coming, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he's coming to receive his bride. He's coming to destroy and to judge all his enemies and to set up his everlasting and eternal kingdom. And my dear friends, you and I will be in it. Fancy the church wasting her time on politics and social matters, all irrelevant, paid no attention to, and ignoring this. I have nothing to say to the world this morning except this, that unless every individual in it repents and believes the gospel, he is doomed to everlasting perdition. But I can tell him that if he does repent and believe, he will be put into this body He will be prepared for this great crowning day that's coming. He'll be in a kingdom that belongs to God and to Christ, an everlasting kingdom. And he's going to share in the glory of it all. Here's the comfort. I have no human comfort to give you. What's the value to you of my opinion as to whether there's going to be a war or not? What's the value of my agitating here that they should stop manufacturing hydrogen bombs? They won't listen to me. And even if they did listen, what difference does it make? We've all got to die and face God and eternity. That's not the message. That's man's message. Here is God's message. The members of the body of Christ. The bride that is being prepared for the great marriage feast of the Lamb, the Son of God. Here's the plan. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fancy wasting time in preaching about earthly kingdoms and earthly affairs when we belong to a heavenly kingdom and have these heavenly affairs. So I end on this note. The certainty of this plan. Until he gave some apostles, etc. to do the work until. Oh, it's absolutely certain. Listen to the same apostle putting it in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. These things he says are to go on. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Until the Lord knoweth them that are his, says Paul to Timothy, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And he knows them every one. And there is a given number. It is the fullness. And this will go on until every single Gentile that is to be saved has been saved. And every Israelite that is to be saved has been saved until nothing can stop it. Let the world do its worst. Let the principalities and powers do what they will. Let the heathen rage and roar and the people imagine a vain thing. Yet have I set my king upon my holy mount of Zion. And nobody can stop it. All Israel shall be saved. There will be not a single one 
left unsaved who belong to the redeemed. But also let us remember that this all has another emphasis and signification. Till we all come, the collective, yes, and the particular, it's been running right through this chapter, hasn't it? He's put it in general and then he says, but unto every one of us is grace given. This process is going on until every one of us who is a member of the body of Christ shall be made perfect without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What a message on a morning like this that you and I are to be blameless and faultless the sons of God. He is going on with this until there is no vestige of evil left in us anywhere nor a suspicion of sin. Why, we must be perfect to be the bride of the Lamb. And the process is going on, we are told, until we shall all, all, every one of us, attain unto this, and shall together be presented to him as his holy bride. My dear friends, there's nothing more sure than this. I don't know what's going to happen in the world. Nobody else knows, but of this I know that he who has already conquered every enemy and led captivity captive will ride on in his majesty until his every enemy has been defeated and routed and destroyed and all his people shall be safely gathered in and made perfect and ready to receive him. That is what is happening. So I beseech you, see yourself in this context and in this setting. Don't let your thinking be determined by the world. God forbid that the church of all institutions should do that, but let us not do it as individuals either. Let's see ourselves in this plan of God, the plan with respect to us, the separated people taken out of this present evil world, separated unto Christ. Let us realize, I say, that this is the meaning of the church and of our membership in the church. Let us be certain that we take the Bible's view of everything that is happening in the world round and about us. But above all, oh, let us urgently consider this, that our first and supreme task is to prepare ourselves for him. He that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Did you notice how it was put in the seventh verse of that 19th chapter of the book of Revelation? When we are told that he comes, then this, his wife, hath made herself ready. In other words, as the world darkens and sin becomes more evident and loud and arrogant, your business and mine is to perfect ourselves, uh, to purify ourselves, uh, to prepare ourselves for him. His wife hath made herself ready. Are you making yourself ready? You're a part of the bride. You're a part of this wife. The wife of the Lamb, the Son of God. Her wife, his wife, hath made herself ready. Beloved people, the way you and I can help the world, even most of all today, is to show what it means to be in Christ. To show the difference. We do that by making ourselves ready for him. It is the saints who have always influenced this world most of all. 
It isn't as we conform to the world and make alliances with it and get confused with it. It isn't thus that we influence it. It's by showing the difference of being in Christ. It's by making ourselves ready for the husband, the Lord, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. May God enable us to do so. He has done all from his side. He has given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He's made the provision. That is their task. God grant that we may all realize it and respond to the teaching. 